Blog Talk Radio. This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Share your question or comments using the live chat feature on our website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Again, that's www.allaboutwinebtr.com. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Look at that. Wow. <laughs> wow. On time. Thank you. Audio's good. And, and yeah, uh, it, yeah it's, just, it's warm here as opposed to the rest of the country. And it's just, wow. I'm looking Amazing. at my my studio here, and the auto clip section has purple. And I'm yeah. seeing purple. Yeah, it, it was like that for uh, last week, week before last, I think. Uh, I saw uh, was it change on there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, I don't know how sure. Different. Yeah, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I, for some reason, I just now noticed that. It just it was purple. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, well. The, no, maybe that's the things we upgrade. It'll probably charge us more. I get that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you now have the purple page, and so therefore. That's right. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. happy pie day. Like like three point one four one five. What, what's the number again? Yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah. Today's Friday. I got it right. Woo-hoo. You got it. Right. Yeah. You know the thing. We uh, engineer had uh, wife had some uh, her cousin and uh, her husband stopped by and visited for a while today. They were heading back out to the airport, and so they stopped by and visited for about an hour and a half. And he mentioned. Pi Day, and I said P-I or P-I-E, and it went right over my head. I had no idea, and they all looked at me funny, and we went on and started talking about something else, and it never, you know, I, I completely and totally mm-hmm. had no idea what they were talking about, and about an hour after they left, I'm watching TV, and the news said, and it's Pi Day, and I'm going, oh my gosh, that's what they were talking about, and just, you know, and, and came to me right then <laughs> they were talking about. So I felt like maybe you were fast. I you really Is it be is it because it's 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 three fourteen now today? Yes, yes. Three fourteen. I just saw that my I just saw that myself. So that's three one four and then you know the rest of it it's not doesn't count but yeah. uh but three one four fighting. See yeah, I didn't realize fighting. that. Yeah well you did I mean good. I could, yeah. I would have I would have said PIE also. I said, "Oh, really? What kind of yeah. pie are you know are you having today, or with your with your wine?" I didn't that's, know. Yeah, that's what I thought. Huh. Pie, P-I-I-S, P-I or P-I-E, and trying to, huh. you know, And I thought they meant pie, P-I-E, and so when I said P-I or P-I-E, and but the wife popped in an apple pie in the oven, so we're going to have a pie on pie day. Yay! So. Oh um, wow! Yeah, that nice. That is that. Huh. Is, uh, so, okay. I'm going to try on pie day. 
Is that irony or is that coincidence or is that, I don't know. Get those confused. Uh, <laughs> welcome to, for, uh, to All About Wine uh, on Blog Talk Radio. We are live on Pi Day. 314 at 7.04 right now, Eastern Time. If you wanted to have a conversation with us, you wanted to ask us a question or something, then go to the website or the Facebook page. And in the lower right-hand corner, there's a link. You click on that. Mike will find it. He will see you. He monitors it all the time. And we'll get your questions, and we will get you on. I, I... we had to stop live, uh, sorry to say, but this works though. So, so uh, yeah, we'll take your, take your comments and questions this way. Yeah, the yeah, phone calls just it, weren't uh, just weren't working out. No, yeah. no. If you want, though, you can always email us, and if you email us, then I will see your questions and uh, give me a chance to do research on it. Like we had a very good question about a month ago on. What do they keep in the little flask on the St. Bernard dogs that rescue people in the mountains? And that was a good question. We had a, I was able to do some research and find out more about that than I ever knew. So you can get a hold of us that way also. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, yeah. So we, uh, uh, what else? There was something. Oh, spring is coming, isn't it? Spring is. A week from today, yeah, the 21st, or is it on the 22nd? Uh, well, sometimes. For Florida, it started in January, didn't it? You're right. <laughs> You're right. And then that bloody groundhog came out in February yeah. and told everybody, ah, spring's, over, or spring's coming, winter's over. And look yeah. what's happened ever since then. You know? Oh, yeah. I heard there's a contract out on that groundhog for that, too. So There should be. Uh, Long they really should. You know, the false hope that they give all the people. And, you know, I mean, like the weather moving across across the mountains, Colorado is snowed in, and, mm-hmm. uh, tornadoes and flooding all through the Midwest. Now heading heading to the East Coast. So, woo, burr. All right. Uh, food. What food's coming up this coming week? Well, Pie Day. We have National Potato Chip Day. That's today. National potato chip. Any type of chip, I suppose, will work. You can pair that up with just about anything and have wine with that. Tomorrow, National Peanut Lover's Day. Not peanut butter, peanut lover's day. So, uh, I suppose, you know, a big thing that's very popular down here in Florida, too, is those uh, roasted peanuts. Yeah. Are not roasted. What it, see them on the side of the road all the time. The boiled, you know. Boiled peanuts. Not a fan of the boiled peanuts, but that's, you know, you see those all the time here in Florida. Um, uh, let's see. National Pears Helen Day is t- tomorrow. What's a Pears Helen? Do you know what a Pears Helen is, engineer? No. I don't either. Uh, Pears Helen Day, H E L E N E. Saturday, National Artichoke Heart Day. Oh, those are good. National Artichoke Heart Day. It's good if you can just buy them in a bag with the artichoke hearts, or you can get the artichokes themselves and peel it down into the heart, and as you're peeling it down, take each of the little leaves and dip that in butter and scrape that off with your teeth and get a little bit of the flavor there. 
Sunday, as we all know, St. Patty's Day. Dig out the green beer and the green wine. You can find green wine out there. It's out. I used to have green wine. The uh, key lime wine used to sell very well. Year after year, used to sell very well uh, around this time of year. But key lime wine. 18th Monday, National Sloppy Joe Day and National Lacy Oatmeal Cookie Day. Uh, Sloppy Joe Day. Pull out some uh, some red wine and have it with your Sloppy Joes there. And depends on how much seasoning you put in in it, but that's always good. And Oatmeal Cookie Day. Tuesday, the 19th, National Oatmeal Cookie Day. Not Lacy Oatmeal Cookie, but Oatmeal Cookie. Now, that's odd that they would have two different official days, one for Lacy Oatmeal Cookie, one for Oatmeal Cookie, but it's there. National Poultry Day is Tuesday also. So that includes any bird. And you can have just about any type of wine for any type of bird that you can think of. I'm sure there's something out there that will match your needs for whatever bird you happen to be cooking up on Tuesday on National Poultry Day. Tuesday also is National Chocolate Caramel Day. Take out your heavy reds. Have yourself some National uh, some chocolate caramel. Next Wednesday, National Ravioli Day. And it says here on this calendar, Purim begins. P-U-R-I-M. Purim. I have no idea what Purim is. But it says Purim begins on the 20th. That is a Jewish holiday that commemorates the saving of the Jewish people from Haman. Haman? Oh. Aman, who was planning to kill all the Jews. Huh. That's, well, uh, yeah. Purim begins. Uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 you on know, the a lot 20th. of Jewish holidays, yeah. A lot of those holidays yeah. usually begin at sunset and Pur- go through. Purim. So. Purim. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, National Pairs uh, Helene, or whatever however you say it, day is, uh, it, it's, it's French, so it has you know, marks above the E's, so I don't, I don't know how you say that. But anyway, right. uh, it's a dessert made from pears poached in sugar syrup and served with vanilla ice cream. Sounds good. Chocolate syrup, yeah. which also sounds good. And crystallized yeah. violets. Uh, yeah. I don't know how you crystallize violets, but uh, anyway. So it's a, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a food holiday. <laughs> it's a food holiday uh, w- about the uh, delicious, uh, smooth French dessert. Um, yeah. Sounds combining good. Combining those ingredients. Yeah, I'll, I'll go for that. Um, Except for the crystallized violets, I question the <laughs> other parts. Huh? <laughs> I know, crystallized violets. <laughs> uh, oh, it says that the delicate crystallized violets have been replaced with sliced almonds. Oh, so there are substitutions. Uh, there's more than 3,000 varieties of pears grown in the world. And wow. Washington, Oregon, and Northern California grow more than 95% of the pears sold in the United States. Wow, and yeah. uh, what else? Uh, blah, blah, blah. That's under judgment and many other fruits. Uh, and, uh, hmm. Nothing on here about wine. Anyway, next. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big pear fan, so that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So. All right. Make that oh, that's that pears selling. Yeah, that's <laughs> tomorrow, by the way, people. Tomorrow. So. Yeah. And then, um, uh, Korean begins on the 20th. And then the 21st week from the day is National Crunchy Taco Day. Yay! I like tacos. 
Wow. National French Bread Day is also the 21st, and National California Strawberry Day is the 21st. I don't know why not any other place. Lots of places grow strawberries, but Florida also. But National California Strawberry Day is next Thursday. So those, there you go. Y'all got your education on 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 uh, Paris Helen. And also, if you're not Jewish, you just learned something about Purim Day. So our Purim begins um, next week. So there you go. Those are the things to pair up your wine with the different foods for the week. And uh, so as always, enjoy and drink responsibly and all that. So we are going to, well, let's do a couple of trivias here before we move on and to uh, talk about yeast. And then I've got a couple other things to talk to you about also. 184 years young. What is the oldest cork tree in the world? It's located in Alento region of southeast of Lisbon in southern Portugal. It's known as the Whistler tree. It has been harvested for cork from its bark since 1820. 1820. In general, most cork trees are harvested every nine years for a total of 175 to 200 years, after which the quality of the cork diminishes. At that point, the tree is usually cut down and used for firewood, and a sapling is planted in its place. Huh. So that's getting pretty close to its demise here, 1820. And uh, we're looking at 200 years next year. So it may be, may be on its last limb. A Zen by the name. We've talked about the Zen here. This, I don't know what this is. I haven't read this, but let's, let's go through this. For more than a century, Americans wondered what Zimdo really was and where it had came from. The jammy, lip-smacking red varietal has been one of California's most prominent and popular wines since the gold rush. But since no other country in the world grew a grape called Zimdo, the grape's origin remained a mystery. Until 2002, that's when Carol Meredith, and that's why I just read this last week, I believe, or week before, and two creation scientists checked DNA and discovered that the Zimdo's ind- indigenous creation grape called the uh, Sirlenic Castellansky. That's a mouthful. I'm glad they changed it to Zimdo. The origin is easier to pronounce than uh, much harder to pronounce. So what we switched it to is easier to pronounce. So the Zimindo. I, I covered that last week. You want no more detail about wine and health. The science supporting the proactive role of alcohol is indisputable. No one questions it anymore. This is what a Dr. Curtis Ellison, a professor of medicine and public health at the Boston University School of Medicine, said. There have been hundreds of studies, all consistent. According to researchers, the most compelling evidence for alcohol's benefits comes from large population studies which have been and have had impressive results. In one study noted in New York Times, for example, of more than 80,000 American women, those who drank moderately 
had only half the heart attack risk of those who did not drink at all. Even if they were slim, did not smoke and exercise daily, the drinkers were actually less likely to have a heart attack. Moderate drinking was about as good for the heart as an hour of exercise a day. Not drinking at all was as bad for the heart as morbid obesity. Oh my gosh, there you go. You want to reason this for women's studies, but I suppose we can, you know, apply that to men also. Why not? But yeah, there you go. Uh, the incident of heart attacks is, let's see, 50%. Uh, half, yeah, 50% of those who didn't drink. Wow, that's substantial, I think. All right. Uh, Going to talk about yeast, wine yeast. You can't make a wine without yeast. Bottom line. Got to have yeast. Got to have the yeast to make the wine. Now, in the 1860s, uh, the first enology scientist, and enology is the study of grapes and uh, uh, making wine and stuff, the first enology scientist, who happened to be Dr. Louis Pasteur, if you are familiar with the name, Proved that fermentation is done by yeast, and he destroyed a long-held notion that fermentation was a divine intervention benevolently bestowed so that people would have wine to drink, which is a nice thought, but it wasn't true. He found that it was yeast that actually caused it. hundred years later, cultured wine yeast were first produced. That was the 1860s, 1960s. We had our first cultures to help the fermentation. Since then, people have wondered what to call fermentations to which no yeast were added. Wild, feral, native, natural, indigenous, spontaneous, uninoculated. Uninoculated and spontaneous are scientifically correct. Those are natural terms. Marketing concerns can be much more compelling than uh, winemaking issues. That's uh, the phrases we use wild yeast or we do natural fermentation have acquired a okay, so here comes the the uh, I'm sorry I interrupted there engineers at the door and the cat was running that direction so who often uh, you know uh, people seek out different ways to describe it. So they look for natural fermentations and stuff like that. But what does wild yeast or natural fermentation mean? And uh, is it refers to yeast that come in the grapes from the vineyard? Or is it just the uh, added culture is, uh, you're not adding yeast to it. And so therefore it's, it's natural or wild. And natural, the micro, wine microbiologist would tell you that all non-GMO yeast strains, and there are very few GMO yeast strains, for all of you out there who are wondering, there there's not many at all, are natural. Even if they came from a packet, they're all natural. They're simply strains isolated from the fermentation that someone liked and which was maintained in the culture. 
But many winemakers and even some consumers believe that only yeast which grows spontaneously in the crushed grapes are natural. All right, so this is a big thing. They are. There are yeast in the grapes. When you pick a bunch of grapes, I've always said that probably the first wine that was ever made was a caveman who went out and took some wall grapes and threw them in a little indentation in the bottom of the cave and came back a few days or a week later after hunting Mastodon and they had fermented and he says, oh, good, and did it again. But natural yeast occurs in uh, on grapes. Okay, so where do yeast come from? There are three sources. The vineyard. They're in berries, leaves, dust, and other vineyard sources. And yes, dust, yeast is very small. They also come in the winery. Grape processing equipment and winery services, surfaces can hold yeast. And the winemaker adding cultured yeast. So these are the other ways to uh, uh, get yeast. So if we pick it in the vineyard, and we go into the winery and begin fermentation. That the various yeast and bacterial species in wine are not human pathogens. You cannot catch a disease from your fermentation, from your yeast. It it can't be done. Okay, it's it's not crossover. Um, bird viruses and stuff like that. From we hear about the crossover, but uh, the. Yeast is not something that humans can, uh, from wine, can get ill or anything. Okay, remember that their agendas of yeast are different from those of the microbes on which we depend. And especially with those that compete with the microbes we choose to make our wine with. They're all different types. Grapevines know nothing about wine and would not care if they did. Yeast do not know about wine. They are just engaged in a battle to the death with other species to use grape sugar. It is up to us to understand this and to adjust conditions to encourage microbes who influence we want at certain times and discourage microbes we do not want. Now, this is all making wine. If you don't have these, this, you're, you don't have wine. Up to 100 species of yeast are associated with the winemaking process. Uh, that's on the grapes and the cellars and the wine. Most of these species cannot grow in the alcohol-rich environment in wine. But they may grow in the juice before fermentation and in the wine cellar. All right? So it's you can get yeast uh, that's around everywhere. In the vineyard, developing grape berries acquire a waxy coat called a bloom. This is the yeast stick to this. If the grapes are in good condition, a number of species of yeast and some bacteria remain on the outside of the grape with the juice tightly closed inside the grape skin. If grapes start to decay, usually because of rain or humidity or pests or molds or other microbes piercing the berries, juice starts to leak out and the microbial feeding frenzy begins. Sometimes these grapes become spoiled beyond remedy and must be discarded. And that, you've seen that happen when you take grapes home and let them sit around too long. 
Careful sorting can select grapes that are still usable. Even under perfect conditions, the most common yeast species on grapes and other fruit is uh, Colichira apicalatia. Apica, how's that pronounced? Apiculata. And it's also called something else that's even harder to pronounce. They're joined by a variety of others, and I'm not going to try to pronounce any of these because these are all you know, scientific names for yeast, and many others. Fortunately, Betromyces, which is one of the ones that can really destroy wine, is absent or extremely rare in these uh, sets of yeast. These vineyard yeast species may be inhibited from the start by SO2, added to the grapes, or they may grow briefly until uninhibited in, until inhibited by alcohol, except for chlorocura, which resists both normal SO2 levels and alcohol during much of fermentation. Okay, so you have all these yeasts that are on the grapes, and as you're doing it, you can kill these yeasts by adding SO2. That's why organic wines and biodynamic wines have to really watch because the SO2 is not added and you can't really stop fermentation at times when you want to and it becomes a little bit more alcoholic. Alcohol will kill the fermentation, will, will kill the yeast. Now, alcohol is made from the yeast eating the sugars in the grape, and that turns to alcohol. Some of the non-Saccharomyces yeast species, especially uh, Colecra, are more cold-tolerant than uh, Saccharomyces. The yeast species which most eventually dominate the fermentation, if it's to go to complete and, re and completion result in palatable um, wine. Okay, so I mean, I, that was maybe a little confusing. Saccharomyces is a yeast species that will live, and especially cholesterol, that will live. And they're more cold tolerant, and they will survive all these other yeast species. Cool. Soaking above uh, uh, 10 degrees centigrade or 50 degrees Fahrenheit or letting cold juice warm up slowly encourages growth of these unwanted yeast. Other practices that may tip the balance in favor of these undesirable yeast species are high pH, open top fermentators, no or insignificant yeast, uh, no or insufficient yeast inoculation, and insufficient nutrient supplementations. So these are all things that could cause the bad yeast to continue to live and continue to fight against the good yeast. If uh, Colecura is, or any of these vineyard species grow only slightly before being swamped by Saccharomyces, the flavor changes may be considered complexities. You've heard that in wine, so this is a very complex wine. But if they grow to a large extent, 
they can produce a penalty of undesirable effects act like ethyl acetate, which is airplane goose glue smell or nail polish remover odor. Often these are smelled before fermentation, so the winemaker get these. Uh, Isomol acetate, which is a banana peel smell, or H2S, which is the rotten egg smell, and acetate acid, as well as some undefined odd characters such as rotten hay or vegetables. So these are all things that you can get if the bad yeast starts producing too much. Non-Saccharomyces species, especially the Nemesis colicora, also strip juice of nutrients and vitamins, which Saccharomyces need to survive. And they can make floating clumps that settle into fluffy leaves, which is the stuff that settles in the bottom. Worst of all, the activities of colicora and others can result in stuck fermentation which means that it gets to a point and it won't do anything anymore. It's just, it's dead in the water right there. These yeast species are not benign collaborators in the process of making wonderful wine. They are competitors with the fermentation and the yeast. Saccharomyces is the main one, and they're competing with that for the sugar in the grape. It has been said that the natural end product of grape juice is vinegar, but it, uh, I believe it is to be spoiled wine or whatever uh, of whatever sort. It's not vinegar. It's bad wine. If you know these, it is a process to make vinegar. These yeast taken over will not automatically give you vinegar. It will give you just bad wine. Is you know you have to be careful because if you're not you're not going to get anything good if you are careful in handling and checking it you can get good wine so it's a little bit more to it than just throwing the bat and walking away. Saccharomyces or Saccharar I think it's Saccharomyces is a wimpy yeast except for one thing alcohol. Theodore Roosevelt said, walk softly and carry big sticks. Saccharomyces epitomizes that admonition by yielding a big stick of alcohol production. The first Saccharomyces yeast have to grow significantly to make enough alcohol to overpower the others. If they're outcompeted or even inhibited by other species, they may be out of luck. Now, this is, you know, uh, when you're fermenting juice, fermenting the grape juice, you want the Saccharomyces to take over. You want it to do it, but it is in a constant battle with all these other yeasts trying to be the winner, and all these other yeasts are also trying to be the winner also, but if Saccharomyces is strong enough and produces the alcohol and does enough the alcohol, it will kill off all these other yeasts. So they are all battling to get as much sugar as they can from the grapes and eat the sugars. The Saccharomyces is eating it, turning into alcohol, where these others are turning into off-flavored alcohol, off-flavored chemicals and stuff. Not alcohol, but off-flavored chemicals. 
So we're cheering for the Saccharomyces to win so that we have our wine. But, very important, there are a few Saccharomyces on grapes. They do not carry a large number of the yeast best suited to ferment them at all. There are some, but not a large number. So there are some psychomyces there, but you, you have to add these wine yeast to get it to go. Wine experts refers to people who drink and write about wine or even make it, but does not refer to wine microbiologists. And wine microbiologists know a different story. It's just less romantic, but it is a very, very important step on it. Then you got sources of the yeast in the winery. A wine veteran at UC Davis, uh, the micro microbiology professor emeritus, Dr. Ralph Kunke, asked, where do indigenous yeast come from? He replied without hesitation, the winery, and proceeded to give case history. Wine microbiologists know that good wine is not made by most of the yeast on grapes, but mainly by cellar resist, uh, resident Saccharomyces yeast if no yeast is added. DNA studies contradict the idea that Saccharomyces predominates on grapes. They have had many studies on yeast uh, on grapes in the cellar and in wines, and the DNA tests consistently show that the strains fermenting the wines come from tanks and other wine resources, not the grapes. In a brand new cellar, if no cultured yeast is added and no used containers or equipment are brought in, the first ferments will either spoil or the few Saccharomyces on the grapes will eventually grow enough to take over. More than likely, they will spoil. Once wine has been made at, at any time in the cellar, that cellar will be colonized by Saccharomyces yeast. And the wine cellar is lined with yeast, it's said. From then on, juices that are not inoculated will pick up the resident Saccharomyces yeast strains from the winery. As soon as the grapes reach the crusher, they are inoculated with enormous number of winery resident Saccharomyces. Thus, the huge population of Saccharomyces yeast in the winery gives the winemaker who does not add yeast a fighting chance to have a positive fermentation outcome. Hence, your biodynamic and your uh, organic. It's the Saccharomyces is in the wineries. And that's where they get it. It is there, and is so they are able to to make it. They have to be careful, though, and they have to watch what they're doing, but they can make it uh, from there because of the one of the resident Saccharomyces. Huge population of Saccharomyces yeast in the winery gives a winemaker who does not add yeast a fighting chance to have a positive outcome. An addition of sulfur dioxide before fermentation also helps the process considerably by delaying but not preventing the growth of non-saccharomyces. 
Okay, so again, if you're organic and or biodynamic, you're not adding any of the sulfur dioxide, SO2, and so you're, you've got to let the Saccharomyces fight its own battle. If no or little SO2 is added, the ferments take their chances as the resident yeast try to dominate the yeast of, on the grape. So uh, it's a it's a battle. It's something you have to watch. So it gives you more respect for the organic and biodynamic, and the fact that the winemaker has to monitor those continuously. The winemaker is a source of yeast. When cultured yeast is added, and I, everybody, I think every winery has their little jar of cultured yeast in the freezer or refrigerator. When cultured yeast is added, it is usually assumed that this strain and no other will dominate the fermentation and that no non-Saccharomyces yeast will be able to grow. This is not always the case. Sometimes the cultured yeast are weakened from poor storage or mishandling or um, conditions where the grape must. Uh, for example, the low temperature or high SO2. So a small contribution is made into it by Coquera and other non-Saccharomyces species before the added yeast take over. And it's not always a disaster, but if the cultured yeast is not viable enough, they may not be able to dominate the fermentation with the results being uh, stuck fermentation. Again, it just gets in the middle and you don't have enough alcohol uh, and the yeast aren't doing their job and all that. I went to a couple of those when I was making wine at the winery. I think every winery does at one time or another end up with a stuck fermentation. In a lab in California, and affiliated lab in Chile and South Africa, and actually not as often in New Zealand because of the lower pH and lower bricks of the wines, they've seen thousands of stuck fermentations. And in many cases, non-Saccharomyces yeast from the vineyards play a large part, whether it's cultured or not. Bottom line, it is very useful for winemakers to know about the tiny microbes on which wine depends. Without them, we would be drinking grape juice. But without an understanding of the habit inhabitants of the various species that can peak for prominence during fermentation and cellaring may end up with a spoiled grape juice instead of wine. Wine microbiology should be concerned not just of wine microbiologists, but of every winemaker, uh, wine bi microbiology. So there you go, yeast in a wine. Uh, it is what makes wine wine. That's really the bottom line. You probably don't think too much about it, and they don't label it. Uh, this is, you know, when you start talking about, we want full disclosure of our wines, and we want to know what's on it. We need to have this whole label out and everything else. Well, when you start doing stuff like that, you start running across, well, you put the types of yeast and everything on there. And very few yeast are, are GMO. You're not going to get GMO yeast out there that uh, has been modified so that it will go on uh, 
sort of work better. I mean, it's all natural stuff. There's, uh, I, I don't know of any. I'm going to say there's none out there, but that's really is not true. There are some. I don't know what they are, though. I'm not. I, I've never used anything except natural whenever I was doing it, and I. All the wine makers I know use natural. So, so there you go with yeast. Now, speaking of that. You know your wine defects. Now, this a lot of this comes from the yeast too, and whether you believe it or not, it's really quite critical what that yeast does. If the yeast doesn't work properly, if that Saccharomyces it doesn't work properly, you you can have uh, we can have all sorts of stuff. I don't think it's anything important, but. Uh, but what are, what are your wine defects? It's uh, uh, an interesting article here on wine defects. My cell phone is ringing too. I don't know why that is. We get the landline and the cell phone both ringing at the same time. If you want to talk to me, <laughs> yeah, go, go to Ron is taking a request right now for <laughs> yeah, really. If you need to talk to me, yeah. no. <laughs> Both on at the same time, really. My cell phone was ringing in the other room. I tried to keep the cell phone away huh. from me, so ringing in the other room, and then the landline was ringing. We have, a, we have a phone right here by the computer, and that's why it was so loud. Well, mm. um, wine defects or faults is an undesired characteristic in a wine that appears due to poor production practices, either through viticulture and enological practices. Some of these defects, such as volatile acidity, oxidation, and reduction, are straightforward and may generally agree that they cause a decrease in wine quality. Others, such as Brettomyces contamination, often are subjective and a result of winemaker preference or allowance. And Brettomyces can be, you know, both. Um, there's some subjectivity to if these compounds in a wine are defective or not. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think so, but some people try to get certain ones. Awareness of such defel- uh, defects that appear more prevalent uh, help you understand what they are. Winemakers and winery personnel have taken time to learn these technical wine defects and to um, become sensitive to the defects. And many of these are associated with an individual impact compound, which is a chemical that is associated with a given number, a given aroma or smell. You can train yourself to pick these up. It's not that difficult. Um, People still have a, a view of wine as, Oh, I don't know what that is, or I can't figure that out. Yeah, you can. You can. You can just train yourself to do it. It's, it's very simple. And if you really want to get into it, there's different kits and different packages and different things you can get online that help you detect and understand different smells and aromas in wine, different compounds. Uh, it, it, you know, it's. Uh, each, you know, like volatile acidity is acidic acid and or ethyl acetate, uh, bell peppers, uh, isobutyl, methyl 
perosing and you know stuff like that there and, and there could be more than one you know impact compounds are often this final smell in the wine is related to concentrations of these compounds and you can pick up more than one it is possible wine defects are volatile compounds or chemicals that escape from the wine solution to the gas phase and that's the headspace in the, in the glass which can then be smelled through the nose Every individual has a genetically inherited predisposition in their ability or inability, in the case may be, to sense these smells. Therefore, it's often advisable that winemakers have a team of individuals to do a sensory evaluation on wines prior to them reaching the market, which is always a good idea. You always get somebody out there to uh, help you smell different things because it isn't always that easily noticeable at times. I used to take stuff out when I was making wine come out and have people smell it and taste it and say, what do you think of that? Here are seven defects I'm going to tell you about here that you can and may have noticed or possibly noticed in wine. First, number one, oxidation. This is the impact compound associated with oxidation is acetaldehyde, which is the smells like a bruised apples or sherry. You picked up sherry and smelled it. Now, if a wine smells like sherry, it's oxidized. Also, oxidation results in a browning of the wine. Now, there are some wines that are naturally occurring, the natural occurring process in heavily aged wines that will cause to be brown. But in young wines, if you see a browning, very good possibility that it's oxidized, that air has gone to. And oxidation can occur in any number of ways, too. Bad cork and, you know, uh, too much air, just too much oxygen. Number two, volatile acidity. There are two impact compounds associated with volatile acidity. Acetic acid, which is easily measured by a cash still, and it smells and tastes like vinegar. Okay, it's not vinegar. And, and you know, I had so many people used to come to the winery and go, oh, you know, bad wine is vinegar. Or they'll pick up a wine that I have that's starting to get oxidized and starting to go bad. And they go, oh, it's vinegar. No, it's not. Or they'll say, I opened a bottle of wine, it was vinegar. No, it wasn't. It's bad wine. Just remember that. However, it is often difficult to smell acetic acid because of high concentrations is needed before a human becomes sensitive to the aroma. So if it's getting to the point where it really smells like vinegar, you've gone way too far. The other impact compound is ethyl acetate, which smells like nail polish. And we all know that smell. Many individuals can smell or taste the ethyl acetate flavor prior to sensing the acetic acid, as ethyl acetate is easily sensed in the uh, milligram per liter or parts per million range. And that's how we measure these two milligram per liter, parts per million. This is the most common ways we talk about these. Three, sulfur dioxide. Sulfur dioxide, or SO2, 
is the actual impact compound for this defect. It does not actually become a defect unless it is added to the wine at concentrations that cause the burning or irritation in people's noses. Some people can sense a smell of burnt matches as the opposed to an irritation. These sensations are reflective of high sulfur dioxide additions during the winemaking process, and some places do it. In the United States, we're only allowed to bring it up to 350 parts per million. That is the law. Uh, TTB regulates us on that. But at 350 parts per million, that's a lot. You probably could smell that. Uh, most wineries keep it around 100, 125 at the most. Uh, very few of them go much, much higher than that. There are some people who are sensitive to the SO2 and to the sulfur dioxide. They can pick up a wine and smell it. I have opened up bottles of wine and I've smelled the SO2 uh, in the initial opening of the bottle. That's probably one of the good arguments for letting a wine breathe is to let that SO2 dissipate a little bit. But it's not really in that many bottles, so it's not something that's that critical. But SO2 and sulfur dioxide. Four, hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide is a sulfur compound that smells like rotten eggs. Some people describe the smell of this compound as hard-boiled eggs. Higher concentration of hydrogen sulfide are often related to poor nutrient management during fermentation. Again, you're letting your good yeast not completely change the alcohol to control the bad yeast which causes that aroma. Five, reduction. This is one that I, I hear talked about a lot. Reduction. The impact compounds associated with a group of sulfur containing compounds known as mercaptans or Theols, T-H-I-O-L-S, Theols. This group of compounds typically smells like cooked cabbage, canned corn, canned asparagus, rubber, natural gas, garlic, onions, molasses, and uh, putrefaction. As these compounds are not very stable, their smell can be ever-changing as concentrations of the individual compounds change in the wine. That's reduction. Reduction is it gives you any number of smells, and it doesn't have to be any one because it could vary. But that is reduction. It's, I have a problem with reduction in the fact that I don't, my nose doesn't pick it up like it should. I, that's just one that I've always had a problem with. Number six, Bretonomyces. Bretonomyces. The two major impact compounds associated with the Bretonomyces, often referred to as Bret aroma, is 4-ethylphenol and 4-ethylglucol. The overall smell and taste of bread infected wines will vary according to the concentration of each of these two different compounds. Bread wines typically exhibit a barnyard, leather, smoky, horsey, tar, or band-aid aroma. 
and often carry a metallic taste on the palate. And we talked about retinomycetes earlier while I was telling you about the yeast. And some wines try to bring out a little bit of bread. I don't know why. And I taste it, and some of them, you know, it's, it's a thin line, and it's a scary line, but some try. And some do succeed, but I've had some that don't. Seven, cork taint or corky wines. The impact compound related to cork taint is 246-trichlorinosol, which is abbreviated and commonly known as TCA. This contamination is associated with natural cork contamination at bowling or contaminated woods or barrels or wood pallets or wooden fermenters in the winery. It smells like a musty, dank basement. But musky, dank basements are noticeable. You know that smell. I have people talked about cork wines throughout my wine life. And I started mm-hmm. drink wine seriously when I was 20. Well, before 21, obviously, but uh, as everyone does. But when I seriously started understanding and learning more about it, I was like 22 years old. And people would talk about cork wines at that time. And throughout my life, I'm sure I've had cork wines or ones that were not the barnyardy, dank basement, uh, musty smell that people describe it. I never talked too much about it. It wasn't until about... Was it about 13 years ago, 13, 14 years ago, no more than that, 15 years ago now, wow, about 15 years ago, I had a wine that was corked, and someone who was a winemaker and, and I were drinking together, and he took a sip of it, and he said, this wine is corked, and I was astonished and impressed in the fact that he knew right away, and I was able to distinguish what a cork wine is with someone telling me this is what it is. It's hard to distinguish a cork wine. And some people say, oh, I can pick them out all the time. If you're picking them out all the time, then you are not distinguishing it either. You're finding something else in them because it's really not that prevalent. You'll find them, but it's not all over the place out there. So cork wines are something that you will run across, but it's not something that... Oh my gosh, I have myself another one today. You know, it's not going to be like that. So, corked wines or TCA. And number eight, methoxyprizin. Well, I pronounced that wrong. Uh, it's the impact compound often related to the green bell pepper smell. And uh, I said, Butyl method it shortened to IBMP. This smell is very characteristic of certain wine varieties and is especially prevalent in unripe fruit. The problem with IBMP is that it masks the fruity aromas often preferred in many wine styles. So those are the uh, characteristics that faults, if you will. Although some of them are 
brought up a little bit more than they should in some ways. But those are the faults. If you are curious about some of these aromas and stuff, there are some of you see classes on the aromas and what to look for and stuff like that. I would recommend, highly recommend you checking that out. And, you know, get with people who know. And if you've discovered an aroma or something that you're not familiar with, then it doesn't hurt to ask somebody. I mean, take it down to your local liquor store or something like that and say, you know, could you taste this one? I think it's got a fault. And they will be more than happy if they know what they're doing, more than happy to tell you about it. So, but there we go. Yeast is our friend and it is our enemy. But uh, more about wine yeast than you probably ever thought was that important. (laughs) Yeah, um, I wasn't sure if you had more. Uh, we still have a few minutes left, but I didn't know if you had anything else to add or you want to. Oh, I, I um, start on something else, and, but then I, I start. <laughs> you know, I've got lots of stuff. I'm a, next week. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to. I found this great chart here. Uh, it's uh, and not all encompassing, and I can go through my grape list and I do have you know my grape list I've I've referred to and I've referenced at times I can go through that and I can tell you about just about every red wine out there or red grape out there but this little chart here is great I used to hand this out at the classes I taught and it's lists the red varietal the origin of that where it's widely planted and the characteristics and what's so nice about this is Characteristics when you know you're you're trying a grape for the first time, and, and that's why I keep using this because it's it's a very accurate, for lack of a better word, very accurate characteristic list. Like Cabernet Sauvignon from the Bordeaux region, uh, it's an offspring of the Cabernet Franc, and Sauvignon Blanc done in nature. No DNA crossing. It's widely planted in France, Australia, California, Washington, South Africa, Chile, and Argentina. Characteristics of this is the full-bodied, dark fruits, white pepper, licorice, leather, tobacco, cedar, and spice. And that pretty much sums up. I always question the white pepper line there. Uh, as opposed to just pepper, but uh, they call it white pepper. Cabernet Franc, for example, from the Bordeaux region of France, where it's uh, uh, the origin of it, uh, planted in France, California, Washington, New York, Italy, Canada. Characteristics of the Cabernet Franc is a medium-bodied, tannic, grassy, herbaceous, red fruits, purple flowers, Aroma of pencil shavings, which, yeah, that's a good good example of a Cabernet Franc. And it goes on. There's quite a few others on here on the list here. Uh, Barbera, for example, uh, Piedmont region of Italy is its origins. Uh, Italy, Washington, California. Cherries, currants, raspberries, and plums. I, I love a Barbera. That's. I read that one there. But they got quite a few. I'll, I'll tell you some more of these uh, next week. But it's uh, it's really a, a 
quite an extensive list here and, and the origins and stuff. Like I said, I can go into my my grape thing and go through all that, but that's this is just quick, easy, and uh, you know, good reference. So, so I believe we're we're done for another week. Today's pie pie day, three point one four. And I'm also going to have myself an apple pie. Uh, have a so, slice. Yeah. Have a slice. Nice. Have a slice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or but, pizza. Um, pizza is also a pie in some ways. So, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do they call it pizza pie everywhere? I don't know. That's something to look into, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know either. Yeah. No. So. Um, yeah. There you go. Uh, all you wanted to know. Um, about yeast and uh, wine defects. That's right. Wine yeast. I, I, just, I thought that was interesting, though. I mean, you don't think about the importance of yeast. Uh, it's not something that's listed. It's not something that you think about. It's not something that's... Uh, uh, but it's it's something that's important. I mean, you know, quite. So. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and I heard about it here. Yes. yes. We will... We're it's uh, just past eight o'clock. We'll go ahead and uh, close close the show down, and we'll be back uh, next Thursday. That's March twenty first already, uh, seven p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Four hour difference. I think that's from, oh, 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 yeah. oh, 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 Since you mentioned daylight, I, I hear oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I can't pass. You look a- Okay, daylight time. We've, we've been talking about daylight saving time, okay? Now, yeah. there has been, and as Florida senators has submitted to Congress a bill to change the country to daylight saving time all the time. All right? It has to be approved by Congress. We've already talked about that. But I was reading something I thought was very interesting. There is bills in California, Washington, Oregon, uh, Oklahoma, uh, what, Nevada. There is quite a few states, and then there's some in the Midwest and some in the East Coast, quite a few states that are submitting their own proposals that they want to go on daylight saving time all the time. And these all have to be approved by Congress. And the reason for that is the congressional ruling on daylight saving time was back when Congress was approving the the time for the country and stuff like that. Now, I found one thing interesting, and it was, I just got a blank. A New England state, I want to say Massachusetts, New Hampshire, one of those up there, and I'm not sure which one, Vermont maybe, one of those New Hampshire states is submitting that they want to be on Atlantic time, not Eastern time zone, but Atlantic, which would put them one hour ahead. And the reason they're submitting it as changing it to a different time zone is because Congress has no control over that. That is up to the Department of Transportation because of the old railroads, which set up the time zones anyway. 
And that's where the time zones came from. If you're not familiar, this is all the railroads uh, across the country where there was no time on anything. Everybody's going nuts. The train would show up, you know, three hours later and not know when to get there and stuff. And so the railroads divided the country up, started to do the time zones. And they, the Department of Transportation became the governing authority for time zones. If a state does on the East Coast does go into the Atlantic time zone, that would put them an hour ahead of everyone on the East Coast, and it would not have to be approved by Congress because that falls under the Department of Transportation, and then all I need is an approval from the Department of Transportation. <laughs> So, based on that, why doesn't Florida just say, we are now going to be Atlantic time zone instead of Eastern or Eastern daylight? <laughs> wow. Now, yeah, yeah. I, I, thought, I thought that was interesting, though. It's, it's you know, the way it was set up and everything. And, no, it does not affect the farmers. The farmers could care less. The cows don't care what time it is. They want to be milked an hour after sunrise. All right? be that if we call it at 10 o'clock in the morning or if we call it at 6 o'clock in the morning, they want to be milked an hour after sunrise. So it's it's no difference. It, it doesn't hurt anything. It's not affecting the farmers. The farmers, once the sun comes up, they go out there and start working on their fields. Excuse <coughs> me. If that is... If our clocks say that it is 7 o'clock and the sun comes up, they're still going to work on the fields at that time. If the clock says it is, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon and the sun comes up then, they still go out and work on their fields at that time. So the point being is if the farmers don't care what the clocks say, they're, they're basically regulated by the sun. So the old argument, well, the farmers hate it. No, the farmers don't care. You know, they they do their thing no matter what. So, so, but I just I thought that was interesting about the the the, uh, the time zone. You know, going it being regulated by transportation department if you go into a different time zone. Yeah, that is so. uh, huh. yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, I do. I do see some uh, references to uh, Connecticut. Um, they, uh, there was a uh, representative, uh, Kurt Vale of Stafford, uh, has been proposing every year now for uh, like two, three, four years or so that uh, Connecticut moved from Eastern Time Zone to the Atlantic Standard Time year round. Uh, okay, that which means went ahead. Um, there, there are also there's also been studies in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont. And uh, they're also trying to um, get their bills um, passed through. It, it takes, like you said, federal uh, approval for it. But um, but for switching into the Atlantic yeah. time zone, it does not. It's the yeah. Department of Transportation. Uh, yeah. Know, yeah, there you go. So, mm. um, and, you know, yeah. President Trump said he would sign a bill until, you know, he would sign the bill. I mean, it's the whole country, you know, want to go on daylight saving time. So, but, you know, <laughs> no. oh, I don't know. Okay. Uh, we'll see. It's, it Atlantic. always cracks me up. The Atlantic time zone, yeah. Always cracks me up when people say, oh, I can't sleep. I'm so tired. I just, I never got any sleep last night. I'm just, <laughs> I'm exhausted. But then 
daylight saving come and they lose one hour and it throws their life all off. Oh my God, I lost an hour. <laughs> You're not sleeping anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. 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 yeah. They uh, and they someone said that I uh, heard on the radio. I heard uh, Monday after this change over to daylight savings time, which we just had what last week, this week. Um, uh, yeah. There's more accidents from in the mornings from people speeding to get to work than yeah. any other day because. You know, it's something I don't understand with smart technology that we have now. Even your TV, you know, smart TVs will update their times, but everything right. updates their time except the, the clock radio in the car, maybe not. But yeah, everything does. And, you know, I, I don't see why that would make a difference nowadays, but they said that it's usually the, the worst time of year for car crashes because people are, you know, oop, I was supposed oh. to be at work a year, an hour ago. <laughs> you know? I know. I just, I mean, and, and there's better. more heart attacks that morning, too. There's more heart attacks. Yeah, it it spikes on that morning also. Well, you know, I think we should. I think we should split the show. We should have like the outro play, and then we get into this other stuff. (laughs) Yeah, start talking about this other stuff for a while. Like before the show, so then go. Oh, like the after show. Part, you know? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And invite uh, everyone right. into into the green one with us for our after show discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we go. start looking at it and our numbers fall right as soon as it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, did, not, wow. did not complete the show. Turn the show <laughs> off at eight o'clock. Um, well, uh okay. So we'll uh, on that note, uh okay. March twenty first will be our next show, seven PM. Eastern so far, daylight time, uh, savings time. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all uh, next week. Thanks and uh, enjoy your, what was it, tomorrow? Peanuts, uh, peanut lovers? Yeah, tomorrow's peanuts and And, everything else throughout uh, the week. And and, and Paris Helen is tomorrow. Helen A or whatever. Yeah, it's tomorrow, too. Signed up above the the E, so yeah, that's weird. Yeah. French, however you say it. But uh, yeah. Enjoy it, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Yep. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a good week. Thanks, Thanks you for listening. Drink and lots of wine safely. <laughs> This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. <laughs>